If you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. And we're going to read 16 through 33 today. We're going to finish out chapter 16. And then we're going to get into 17. And when we get into 17, I haven't even begin to feel like how many weeks will be in 17, but it'll be more than one, it'll be more than two, it'll be more than three, all right? Like, we're going to see the end of the discourse in chapter 16 that started back a few chapters before it, and in 17, he's going to pray his high priestly prayer, and it's just, I mean, like meat and taters, like it's, it's, it's a lot. So, uh, I don't know, this is just such a good place in the Gospel of John that if you are new to our fellowship, man, you just jumped in in a really good spot, right? Uh, so anyways, we're going to get into the text this morning uh, and read this. And what we're going to find here in this text that Jesus has been and continues, for all you note takers, to prepare the disciples for His coming challenge on the cross. But I mean, we are hours away. I mean, th- this this is... Morning, day of crucifixion. Early, early morning, like, you know, midnight, 1 a.m. type talk. You know, we're, we're talking early, early morning hours, and we're wrapping this discourse up. And so, John chapter 16, let's read verse 16 together. A little while you will see me no longer, and again a little while you will see me. Some of his disciples said to to one another, what is this that he says to us, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me? Truly, truly I say to you, You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. And when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for her joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask Uh, You will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father Himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, and I've come into the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly, not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things, and do not need to question anyone, anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me all alone, or all alone. Yet I am not alone, 
For the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. These are a soon to be suffering on the cross Savior, speaking final words in a farewell discourse that we see in the text here. And going back to verse 16 and 18, Jesus tells them of His departure. He says, a little while and you will not see me. The disciples, they don't understand that. They didn't understand that the arrest of Jesus is only an hour or two away and then His crucifixion would follow after being beaten and mocked and stripped and a crown of thorns being put on Him. Yet because He must go to the Father, they would see Him again as He would rise from the dead. But that's where commentators that I was studying this week think about. They say, you know, He's talking about His death and then His resurrection. You know, His death and His burial and His resurrection. But I agree with John MacArthur here. I actually believe the Lord is speaking not that, but an even greater truth. Um, I believe He is speaking of the time when He ascends to the Father. And He is no longer on earth. And when they will see Him again is in the coming of the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, why do you say that? Because the text here, he says, it's to your advantage that I leave you. I will be with you uh, because my helper, he will be in you and with you. And he will guide you in all truth. And he's even saying in the text, you, will, you won't ask me anything in my name. Or you won't ask me. Why is he saying you won't ask me? Because he won't be there. And he's, like, he's telling them, now you're going to pray in my name. Until then, they have never prayed to God the Father. They've just talked to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, listen, you're going to pray to the Father with the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. And the Lord is going to lead you and do amazing things in your life. But during this interval between His death and resurrection and, and all these things that we're seeing in the text here that there are going to be right there, behold us, um, the disciples did lose their faith in their spiritual vision when they no more beheld Him than the world did. When He has died on the cross. And this is because the Holy Spirit, the Helper, had yet to be sent, sent to them. We know that that comes later in the book of Acts of the day of Pentecost. We know that every believer uh, in, that is trusted and turned in faith in Christ are filled with the Holy Spirit. And Apostle Paul would tell us that we become temples of the Holy Spirit who is in us, who is with us. And, and he says in 1 Corinthians 6 that every believer is bought with a price. Therefore, they honor God with their body. Yeah, but in this one case, undoubtedly, whether it's just speaking to uh, the, the death and the resurrection, if it's speaking to the Holy Spirit, they don't know what he's saying. Um, the disciples in this moment, this is what you need to know in context. The disciples are both troubled and confused. And the Lord sees this. The Lord sees this. And all the words that He's about to share of comfort make more sense to you when you realize they are both troubled and confused. What makes this hard for me today is the Lord has shown me that my time with you is limited. There's going to be a time here soon 
where I will no longer be your pastor. You see your faces? <laughs> I'm choking. But did you feel that in your spirit for a second? He's, he's quitting? He's leaving? I tricked you. I didn't want to go long. I didn't go long with it. I didn't have to. Mark Horn's face literally was like, oh my gosh, right? Like, oh my gosh. But I will tell you, I didn't lie. My, my daughter's like, I was scared we're moving. Right. But my time is limited. I didn't lie to you. And at some time, sooner or later, I probably won't be a pastor at Forefront Church. That could be when I'm 75 years old. It could be seven days from now. I don't know. But you sense that troubling in your... Listen to me. I am just Lee Kemp. The Savior of the world had just walked with these men for three years. And he's telling them, I am going back to the Father. Tag, you're it. Imagine how much more troubled you would feel. And confused. They probably thought Jesus spoke with unnecessary mystery about where he's going and what he would do. They didn't understand what he meant about not seeing him and then seeing him. And so the scripture says they say among themselves, they have this conversation among themselves. In other words, it, it, the text almost con connotates that they, they kept asking among themselves. Like, what is he doing? And in 19 through 22, when we read it, Jesus is explaining their sorrow will be turned into joy. And there is some truths to mine out of this for us today. He knew that they desired to ask Him. He understood that the disciples wanted more clarity. And here's how divine Jesus is. He sees their thoughts. Aren't you grateful that you serve a God that can see your thoughts? And so as he leans in, he also knew that they needed more information. But listen to me. They needed their hearts and minds prepared to endure the coming crisis. Here's what I'm glad. My God knows what's ahead of my life. And he knows how to shepherd me, lead me, guide me to prepare my heart and mind for a coming crisis. Every time I found myself there, I go back and I go, man, I am grateful before this happened that these few things happened in my life so that I could be ready at this point. Jesus is right there walking with them, telling them this needs to happen and this needs to happen because there's some things here. And he says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. He knew that they would be plunged into deep, dark sorrow in just the next few hours. In just the next few hours. He also knew that God would, by His power and grace, turn their sorrow into joy. And by the way, you would be sorrowful too. Sorrowful at the loss of relationship. Sorrowful at the humiliation of their Lord and their Messiah when He's taken. Sorrowful at the seeming uh, victory of His enemies when they take a spear and they, and you, which only one saw it, which was John. The rest of them had wandered at this point. 
where every man was left to himself, and John sticks around with Mary, but they witness Jesus being stabbed through the ribcage with the spear because the, the clouds and the day and the, uh, the, the atmosphere was going to rain. It was like, hey, well, we can't just leave them here. We're going to have to go ahead and make sure he's dead. And they watched that moment. Sorrowful because all they had hoped was being taken away from them. But listen to me. God's work was not to replace their sorrow with joy, but to turn sorrow into joy as He often does in your or my lives. He does this in our life. See, some of us have heard a prosperity gospel that says that if you're walking with the Lord, bad things won't happen to you. That is malarkey. Bad things are going to happen. But God works in and He takes the things that even the enemy or even other people who are controlled by the enemy, which is a whole other sermon, whatever they do in the evil in your life, what they mean for evil, God can turn for the good. He can do it. This is what he does in this moment. He says, guys, listen, you need to know this. This is going to get awful. And, 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 and the sorrow would be directly connected to the coming of their joy. Even as the sorrow, he says, as a woman in childbirth is directly connected. Her suffering and regret of bearing pain and bringing birth is then connected to joy when she holds the child that she has held within her. He's using this illustration to say, listen, I'm going to see you again and your heart will rejoice. It, it could very well be the resurrection that he's speaking about and he's with them. But I, I am also with my boy Johnny Mac. I think Jesus is speaking into that moment and into another moment. Because don't you know when they saw him ascend to the Father after being with them, after the resurrection, having so many days with them, and then He's gone again, that they had this moment because they have yet to receive the Holy Spirit? I'm sure going to miss Him. <laughs> I wonder how long they stood there after watching Him being gone. I wonder what they thought amongst themselves. What do we do now? And so I will see you again and your heart will rejoice. Spurgeon says this, it is most remarkable and instructive that the apostles did not, do not appear in their sermons or epistles to have spoken of the death of our Lord with any kind of regret. The gospel mentions their distress during the actual occurrence of the crucifixion, but after the resurrection and especially after Pentecost, we hear of no such grief. They no longer grieve that He died on a cross. They proclaim He died on a cross. They no longer grieve that He was buried. They proclaim He was buried. And they no longer grieve as, why would you grieve His resurrection? But they proclaim His resurrection. In other words, they realized, on hindsight, Jesus really did have a divine plan from the Father to bring all mankind back into reconciliation with God. This is important. And in 23, in beginning in verse 23, we start seeing that Jesus promises greater joy because of the coming access that they're going to have to God after He departs. 
He says, in that day you're going to ask me nothing. Uh, One, because he's literally bodily not there anymore. And he says, but whatever you ask in my Father's name, uh, ask the Father in my name, he will give you. This blows me because Jesus' great work uh, is this. The disciples have unlimited, undeniable access to God through him. And that's still true today. This is important for us. The disciples had yet to really pray in the name of Jesus, but He's going to begin to teach them these things. He, he's going to begin to pour into them because you have access. So often, I find that we maybe really don't believe this though. We have people who I just want this person to know all these things when really the Lord should hear these things and then further instruct what that person needs to hear or maybe not hear. I remember one time I was in a discussion with my wife and I had a moment and and I said, honey, are you sure this is something you need to tell me or is this something you need to tell the Lord? Now listen, If you say that, you better have a shield. But then the Lord put that on my wife's heart and we had another discussion one day. And she said, is that something that you should have told the Lord or you need to tell me? I'm telling you, there's just moments where when when you're in fellowship so closely with someone that you know when to say these truths to each other, but you kind of need that moment where you're like, all right, uh." Right? You ever been have somebody ask you something and, and, and you go, I don't know. He, he's right here. Why don't we ask Him? Those are weird moments. And so often, I don't know what's going on within all of our hearts that leads us to do everything yet pray. I can worry, I can get anxious, yet not pray. And the how, how, reason I'm pushing on this, you go, well, you just seem like you're meddling. Am I? Because in 17, Jesus prays. And then, he will go off to a garden by himself, and he knows it's getting really close. Judas is on his way, and yet what will he do then? Pray. Almost like prayer is meant to get him through what God wanted him to do. Yeah, but not with us. Not with us. Because we're better than that. And so the point here is, he says this. Why would you want to do this? Why, why would you want to pray to the Father often? Why would you want to do this? Because here it is from the text. For the Father Himself loves you. The One who sent God the Son to be made flesh amongst you as the Messiah in the body of Jesus loves you. That's why you would do it. And Jesus makes it clear that the Son did not need to persuade an angry Father to be gracious, but His work would provide a righteous basis for God's graciousness. 
In other words, people that say, well, you know, Jesus is loving, but God the Father, who we see working in the Old Testament with judgment, you know, He is an angry God and Jesus is loving. That, that is, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. That is the most unbiblical nonsense I've ever heard someone say. He, God the Father so hated the world that He sent His Son. You need to get a new Bible translation because everyone I've ever read said God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. And so the point of the text is this, that, that Jesus is moving. Uh, Barclay comments, he says, He did not die to change God into love. He died to tell us that God is love. He came not because God so hated the world, but because He so loved the world. Jesus brought to men the love of God. If you think Jesus is loving, then you need to know that the Father is loving. And if you know that God the Father is loving, then you would know that when Jesus says you should pray to the Father and you should do this and and pray in My name and He will give you what you pray in My name, then there should be a little bit more of that. That there's no way for you and me to muscle up what God wants to do. And the disciples uh, in 28 and 32, this cracks me up because they have a moment uh, where clarity comes. And they're like, you know, he drops his, uh, the, the speech and gets away from some of the mystery and then he just proclaims bullet points. I came from the Father, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. And then all of a sudden it got Southern Baptist for them and they go, oh yeah, we got that. Those are good points. And that's why we believe in you. And that's why we see that no one needs to question question you, Lord. And he says, but do you believe it? He says, I've come forth from the Father. Jesus is saying here, I have existed in heaven's glory and goodness before I ever came to earth. I am the Word that has become flesh to dwell among you. But now he goes, they say, well now we know that we are sure, now we are sure you know all things. It was a sincere statement, but more confident in their faith than they probably should have been in the moment. Because in a moment, when he's taken, even Peter will deny him before the rooster crows three times. And all of them, besides John, split. So were they really sure of it? He says, do you now believe? He says, you will be scattered. They found it much easier to believe on Him in the upper room that they were just in than they will in the garden of Gethsemane. He says, you're going to be scattered each to his own and you're going to leave me alone. The crisis would come soon when it did the disciples would think every man is for himself. And Jesus says, but yet I am not alone My Father is with me. Can I say this? Jesus relied upon His close relationship with God all the way to the cross and even upon it. Even upon it. In the loneliest moments imaginable, He understood The Father is with him. Spurgeon writes, and he says it this way. He says, I remember that passage about Abraham going with Isaac to the Mount Moriah, 
where Isaac was to be offered up, it is written, so they went both of them together. And so did the eternal father and his well-beloved son. When God was about to give him up his own son to death, there was no divided purpose. They both of them went there together. And Jesus knows these things. But yet in the text, verse 24, will you read that again with me? Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. He is saying these things on the precipice of great suffering and agony that he knows is coming. And the one thing he's sitting there doing is thinking about how troubled they are and how unsettled they are. Does that give you an idea of how God actually cares for you? I pray it does. Because in verse 33, we see the conclusion to Jesus' farewell discourse to his disciples and to all of Jesus' teaching that he's done before the work of the cross. He says, these things I have spoken to you. He is summarizing it this way, that the purpose of all the teaching I have done was to bring you peace and settle you with an assurance that you're an overcomer. That's what I'm here to do, guys. That's what I wanted to show you, that in me, you may have peace. He offers His disciples peace, and He made it in the most unlikely circumstances. I mean, at the very moment of saying these things, Judas met with Jesus' enemies to plot His arrest, and Jesus knows He's going to be arrested, forsaken, rejected, mocked, humiliated, tortured, and executed before the next day is over. And that's when he says these things. And yet, we think the disciples should have comforted him. Yet Jesus had peace, and not only did he have peace, he had enough of it to give it to them in that moment. My, my. Can I just say it this way too? This is going to get real for you. Jesus did not promise peace. He offered it. And He said, you may have peace. But sadly, for you note takers, just something to remember, people may follow Jesus, yet deny themselves that peace. Oh, what peace we often forfeit, as we just sung, all because we do not carry it to God in Bible study, church attendance, baptism, prayer. And not only will they deny themselves that peace, but we also need to know that we gained that peace that Jesus offered it by finding it in him. He said that in me you may have peace. We won't find real peace anywhere else other than Jesus. I can't find it in my spouse. I can't find it in my church or my job. You can't find it in your job. I, I can't. You go, well, we're a church people and you're a pastor. I can't find my peace in you. 
And I have to find that peace with the Lord. Now, I should be at peace with you. <laughs> you should be at peace with me. We should live peaceably as much as we can with all mankind. But, but I can't get that from you. You're not the well for my peace. The well for my peace is the one who says that I'm living water to the woman at the well. The woman had been all those things in her life. And he says, drink from me and you will never thirst again. So Jesus made a way to have peace with God. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Goes on, he says, While you were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we are still knowingly in our own rebellion, brokenness, and anonymity with God, God loves you. He loves you. He doesn't want to judge you. Jesus is for you, not against you. Now make no bones. Ignore Him. He's your only way out. The only thing left for you is to stand in judgment before a holy God without Him as your advocate, and you will be accused and found guilty of your sin, and you will be condemned. But you were condemned walking in. There is no way for us to escape our brokenness without Jesus. Jesus made a way not only have peace with God, but He made a way for you to have peace with others. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul writes, For Jesus is our peace, who was, has made the, both, the one, uh, both one and broken down the middle wall of division between us. He's saying, listen, He's made a way for peace. Alexander McLaren, an old preacher, long gone, said this. He said, He promises a peace which coexists with tribulation and disturbance. A peace which is realized in and through conflict and struggle. So this is the thing I always talk about. Conflict, change, growth. Conflict, change, growth. You cannot grow lest you move through the conflict and change the situation usually starts with us within us, so then we can see some things from another perspective or a more informed perspective, and we can begin to then grow from that. But so often we think that healthy marriages and, 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 and healthy churches and healthy workplace environments are where you don't have conflict. That's, that's not true. I would say if you don't have conflict, you're probably not pushing yourself enough. But how you are healthy is when you find the conflict, we're not stiff-arming each other in our workplaces, in our marriages, in our church life. We're pressing in. One of my, uh, back when I was working at large enough churches to have a secretary, <laughs> I had this one. Um, she wrote a really nasty email to my boss and was gracious enough to CC me on the email. So that not only would uh, my boss know, but I would know that she is at odds with me. 
And man, that began uh, uh, in-office discussion, right? Where we could sit down, and here's where we came back to. Um, we worked through it, but it got ugly for a second. You know what came out of that? She was one of the people that cried the most when we were transitioning to a new, per- to a new church. There was a bond. There was something that forged together in that moment. Because I didn't run from it. Like you and I, we need to talk this out. More recently, I was in a meeting with a community guy. Let's just say it that way. And that meeting with that community fella, it was a private meeting. It was about five of us in the room. And that person got really, really hot with me. Really hot with me. Publicly in the meeting. And basically pointed at me and raised his voice. And I assured him, you are misguided in what you think about me. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. I'm telling you, you are. No, you're not. No, you're not. You know, and then it, and the meeting goes on. And then the Lord, I just sat there. And as the meeting went forward a little bit, I said, hey, can I remind you that that person over there is my friend? And the reason we're having this meeting is because he's my friend and I thought he could help you. And you're judging me that I'm not for you, yet I'm the one that's made this meeting happen and brought that friend of mine who's a friend of yours. And he goes, you know what? I apologize. I was wrong. I shouldn't have said that, and I'm sorry. That guy's attorney, who was in the meeting too, said, can I talk to you for a minute? And I thought, oh my gosh. Like, am I about to be, like, you know, threatened by a lawyer? And the lawyer pulled me into the room and he said, I just want you to know, I have never seen anybody confront him about his anger, and I've never seen somebody show the fruit of the Holy Spirit in a meeting like that with him, ever. And I walked out of that whole meeting with him apologizing again. And I looked at him and I said this and I meant it. I said, some of the best relationships I have are people that I have went really at odds with. But we endured and we made through it and we became really good friends. And I look forward to the friendship that could be possible because of today. And then I had a meeting just recently with that same person. And it went well. And why am I saying it? I'm saying it because some of us are convinced with poor equipping and leadership or even in how you've heard how to lead yourself that you should avoid conflict. But my struggle is not against flesh and blood, the Scripture says, but against things that are much, much more greater than these things. And Jesus is at odds with all kinds of things. And He says, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Yet, this is crazy because he's about to be arrested, forsaken, rejected, mocked, you know, tortured, executed. Judas, the religious authorities, Pilate, the crowd, the soldiers, or even the death on the cross and the grave, he is saying, will not overcome me. Be of good cheer. So instead... Jesus literally tells them this phrase, I have overcome the world. But let me tell you this. If it was true in that moment, then it's even truer now. We read these things like, oh yeah, that was really cool because we know what happened. 
and we disconnect from it because it hasn't happened. We don't see it happening now. It seems as if we're on the defensive all the time as a church, meaning the capital C church. But that's not the truth. When Jesus actually wanted to comfort his disciples and strengthen them, he spoke of his victory, not directly their victory. You know how these guys, according to church tradition, die? They die as martyrs. Everyone except John, because John apparently just can't die the way they choose to kill him. So, were they victorious? I mean, Paul says, but thanks be to God who gives me the victory. What are they talking about? Obviously, they're talking about a deeper, spiritual, ultimate, eternal victory that you and I don't comprehend. And the thought of that is so big, and then we're going to close with this. The thought of that, that Jesus has overcome, had become so precious to John, the writer of this gospel, that he writes the church when he's much older, in this short little letter in the back of your Bible, <clears throat> named 1 John. <clears throat> and in 1 John chapter 5, there's these verses where he talks about the testimony of, of those who are going to believe in Jesus. And he says, uh, verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. I'm in chapter 5, 1 John 5, and let me read verse 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The point is this. We are called overcomers. So can I just say something? Then that means when we have problems in life, the church doesn't need to be the people group that gets overcome by things that we see on the news overcome by things that happen amongst people who live in a world of fallenness and brokenness. But we are called to overcome those things. To set our affections on things above where Christ is. We are meant to overcome things that are in our life with God's help. With God's ability. Do you believe in these things? Because if you do, they are life Altering things. They're not like, they're things that will lead you to pray for your enemies. Who does that? Christ followers do. Well, well, I mean, I don't know a lot of people that, you know, I know a lot of Christians that don't do that. There are a lot of Christians that are not Christ followers. There are those, the Bible says, they claim to believe in God, but they live like He doesn't exist. And that's called practical atheism. They believe in God. They live like He doesn't exist. And the Scripture says, listen, there's always going to be that over there. But Jesus is always building His church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There's always a remnant of people who want to live different. And He wants to give you hope. You know why? Because the proverb says it this way. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. 
back when I was coaching some things through uh, an employment ministry that Christian Men Job Corps, I was a pastor and I had time to volunteer um, and serve guys who were falling on tough times and needed to put their life back together. And one of the first things I would try to help them see is, you feel very hopeless where you are right now. And today I'm not here to tell you I can fix everything, but I can hopefully by the time you and I get done talking, I want you to move from no hope just to less hope. No hope to less hope. And then we're going to get your hope full. But really we would talk about the gospel because I would tell them without knowing the Lord, you don't have much hope. Because you can have bad things going on in your life, but because you know the Lord, you can still have hope. You can still have joy. You can still have peace. Even in the midst of obvious evil. Listen to me. Jesus is about to go to the cross and face your evil and my evil and all evil and defeat sin if people will turn and trust Him. And in that moment, He still has peace, and He says, my peace I give to you. Like, what is that? We are different. If you're a believer today, you are called to live different. And it's focused on the Lord Jesus. It's depending on the Father. It's doing it with prayer often, and the Holy Spirit acknowledged as the helper of how this is going to come about in your life. Here's what I'm telling you. Church is not don't chew, don't cuss, and don't date girls who do. Church is not dancing is wrong and card playing is bad. I like to think I can dance and I really can't, but I'll still dance. And I love playing cards. I'll beat everyone in this room in spades. No doubt about it. I will do it. Any day of the week, right? You will lose. Listen to me. It's not about cleaning up yourself to look better for me or for people that you want to impress. It is about acknowledging and repenting within the soul of who you are, your belief about Jesus, and moving from unbelief to belief. It is moving from turning and trusting Him. You can't get your life cleaned up before you come to God because you can't clean your life up. I don't tell the alcoholic to stop being an alcoholic and turn to Jesus. I tell him, turn to Jesus and he'll love you and change your heart and deliver you from alcoholism. I don't tell a prostitute to stop being a prostitute and then she can come to Christ. She comes to Christ, she'll find a new value, she'll realize she's created in His image, she'll be loved, and she'll stop realizing that she needs to be accepting it in that way and she'll turn from all of that. I don't need to tell this guy to stop being angry. I just need to tell him to turn to Jesus and Jesus will help him with his anger and he'll start to move a different way. He'll become like the biggest teddy bear if he'll let God work in his life. You get what I'm doing here, don't you? You don't change your life for the Lord. You surrender to the Lord and His Spirit works in you. He takes murderers and turns them into Bible writers. And if you don't believe that, take out like a third of your New Testament because Paul was a murderer. I'm here to tell you today, that's the God we believe in. Now, what do I do? 
I have feel like you go, hey man, I feel like I'm seen right now. You know, occasionally I still have a dream that I go to school in my underwear. It's a really weird moment. I mean, it feels really real. And maybe you're sitting here and you go, dude, I feel so seen right now. It's like somebody texted you about what I'm going through. Can I just say this? The only person I've read a text message from are Mark Watson and Sarah Kemp. That's it. I know nothing about what's going on in your life. And if you feel seen, can I acknowledge something? Because maybe you're new to this. Perhaps it could be the Holy Spirit making that known. And I'm going to tell you what I tell everybody. The Bible says when you try to conceal your sin, conceal, hide it, you will not prosper. But if you will confess it and renounce it, you will find mercy. I say it this way. What you try to cover, God will uncover. But what you uncover, God covers with His grace, His mercy, His forgiveness. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you uncovered and said, Lord, you already knew this, but I see it too now. I need you in my life. And the best I know how, I am reaching out, asking you to be my Savior and my Lord. I want to know you. And I need to trust you, and I need to hang on to you from this day forward, God. That's what you pray. You know what that's called? A real Christian. Not a churchgoer. If you've done that, are you still allowing yourself to experience His peace? Or are you going, I'll do it God, I got it. We don't need your help here. Listen to me. You need His help. You really, really do. Let's pray together.